Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, at least the first segment of today's show, we'll be talking all about Home Movie Day, an annual celebration of amateur films and filmmakers that takes place at the New Haven Museum this Saturday, October 15th, from 12 to 4 p.m. I'll be joined in the studio by Yale film archivists Brian Meacham and Molly Wheeler, along with New Haven filmmaker and 2015 Home Movie Day participant David Pilot to talk about the unique pleasures of home movies, what they tell us about our families, ourselves, who we were yesterday, and who we are today. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by WNHH host Babs Rolls-Ivy for a review of 13th, a new Netflix documentary from Ava DuVernay that explores the relationship between race and mass incarceration in late 20th and early 21st century America. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolished slavery and involuntary servitude in the United States in all cases except as punishment for convicted criminals. Through interviews with historians, civil rights advocates, politicians, and former inmates, DuVernay's movie looks at how that exception has allowed mass incarnation to emerge as, to quote Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow. But first, I'm very happy to welcome back to the studio Molly Wheeler, Brian Meacham, and David Pilot. Molly is an archivist at the Yale University Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library with a focus on audiovisual preservation. Brian Meacham is the Archive and Special Collections Manager at the Yale Film Study Center. And David Pilot is a New Haven-based producer, theatrical director, and filmmaker whose most recent documentary, Skin in the Game, The Raven Riley Story, premiered at this year's New Haven Documentary Film Festival. Molly, Brian, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to start with Molly and Brian as the organizers of this event. For people who want a more kind of in-depth, history and discussion of how these two got involved in Home Movie Day, I direct you to the episode we recorded last year, episode nine of this show, last October, uh, which is available on this show's website, deepfocusradio.com. But for those listeners who may not already be familiar with Home Movie Day, maybe I'll start with Molly, uh, can you just give us a level set? What is happening at the New Haven Museum this Saturday afternoon? Oh, sure. So Home Movie Day is an event where... um it's overall a celebration of home movies and amateur filmmaking. And so uh, we have a number of projectors set up that will screen 8mm, Super 8, and 16mm. Um, and we have the ability to inspect films to make sure that they are um, all right to be projected. And the reason that we do this is because a lot of people have home movies, whether they had shot them themselves when uh, years ago when they had a camera, or maybe they inherited uh, home movies uh, that a relative had shot. And um, it's difficult to play these materials back. People are alienated from the playback technology. So um, we provide the opportunity for people to reconnect with their own home movies, their family home movies. Some people are even just interested in this format um, more from a collector point of view, uh, but haven't seen them. So people bring in films, we inspect them, make sure they won't be damaged by the projector. And then we all sit together and um, and watch them. People narrate uh, and sure, sort of share. Sometimes they don't know it's on, so they have spontaneous uh, re- reactions. Um, so it's an opportunity to see your own films and see your communities. Brian, this celebration is an annual event that takes place in over 100 cities around the world. And New Haven's been doing it, I believe Molly started it uh, over a decade ago, but there was some hiatus yeah. somewhere in between. So uh, New Haven has been doing this for a little bit, but could you give our listeners a bit of that context of this doesn't just happen in New Haven, right? This is part of a kind of a movement towards recognizing the cultural and social and historical value of home movies. Certainly, yes. The Center for Home Movies uh, has been uh, sort of organizing and promoting Home Movie Day for a number of years. What is this? The 15th? Yeah. Oh. No, the, this, the Home Movie Day itself. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. started in 2003. Yeah. So this is 
yeah, so 14th maybe, uh, annual celebration. And it does happen in, in cities all over the world. It happens, you know, you dozens of cities in, in Japan alone. I mean, it happens all over Europe and all over the United States. I've been involved in it uh, both in Los Angeles and uh, in uh, Rochester, New York, and, and now here in New Haven. And, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that really brings out some absolutely incredible uh, treasures. You know, it, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the pleasure of it is just being there as you watch other people rediscover their own past. And uh, they'll see something either that they thought they knew well, and when upon watching it again for the first time in 20 years, they realize that uh, they didn't maybe know it so well, or there are some people in it who they either don't recognize or some things happen in a different order. Or you get the people who perhaps um, have inherited a film from their grandparents and have never had the technology to view it. And so they're seeing, I, I, you know, we had one, we had one uh, person bringing in a film where they were seeing their grandparents' wedding. And I believe in that case, maybe their grandparents had died even before they were born. And so they'd never seen them in motion. And so just, to, you know, to be able to have those moments and to share them with a community of people who have similar interests and also can sort of interrogate these films for what kind of a car that is or where this neighborhood was or these fashions, that's also just a fascinating, you know, sort of another level that, that Molly alluded to as far as the you know, sort of people who are interested in more uh, from a, either a collector or a historian kind of vantage point rather than the sort of personal connection that most people have. Molly, I, I attended probably the first maybe hour or two of last year's Home Movie Day uh, in October of 2015. And there are three movies that really stick out to me. And I think they're quite representative of like the diversity of stuff that you can see on the screen at Home Movie Day. One is someone's trip to Cuba before the Castro mm -hmm. regime. This is someone's family vacation in like the early 1950s to Cuba. Two was uh, a streetcar running through East Rock, I believe, and someone in the 1930s or 40s, and someone was talking about how East Rock used to be a Polish neighborhood, and just to see that type of you know mass transit kind of uh, rolling through the city when you know it's such a challenge just to pick up a bus here, but to see a fully functioning streetcar system was so exciting. And then the third was a a home movie that some teenagers from East Lime made. I think mm -hmm. they were in like the early teens. I don't know if you remember that one, but it was a horror movie, right? And they had it was like fifteen minutes long too. And they had all of these like bizarre angles and great special effects, and people were throwing like pumpkins off of bridges, and there were splatters of blood. And it was such a you know it wasn't a home movie. It wasn't typical of I think what a lot of people think of when they think of home movies, and that it's like a document of a birthday party or a wedding. This was something that a bunch of kids created because they were watching a bunch of slasher picks in the '70s, and they thought this would be a fun way to spend time with our friends. Um, with those maybe three hovering in the back of your mind, could you tell our listeners a bit about the types of movies presented, like what is shown on screen um, at Home Movie Day, and I don't know how that, like what kind of impact that has on audiences. Um. Yeah, so those were three good examples of the sorts of films that pop up in home movie days wherever you are. Um, yeah, and that last one, you know, maybe more an example of amateur filmmaking, um, but but yet making movies at home, right? I mean, that's and a lot of horror filmmakers actually started making pretty elaborate uh, home movies on film. There's a collection uh, on DVD of that actually as an example, um, but. The examples that you just gave are also good examples of showing how home movies are, um, they're, they're important documents in that they have, they're full of personal, social, and historical information. So while someone made a film of Cuba, and that was their own personal experience of Cuba, um, sort of shot from the, the personal eye of someone seeing it, 
uh, there's a lot, there's a so, certain social information and a lot of historical significance to that. Um, so I think anyone that goes to home movie day, whether or not they have a home movie or not, um, could glean a lot of information. Um, as Brian said, you know, you could see uh, neighborhoods that aren't there anymore. Uh, the way the playgrounds used to be built, that's a, a sort of favorite example of mine. That's something that you, if there's ever a playground, a home movie, people cannot believe it, that there's just uh, kids essentially on rusty uh, monkey bars just slinging their bodies through space. And now we don't really see that much anymore. Um, so I don't really know if I've answered your question. Oh, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. actually, I think that may be a good transition to the first question. I want to bring David into this conversation. And David, you know, I imagine there are certain perspectives that Brian and Molly bring to Home Movie Day as film archivists. I mean, they're interested in both the material kind of physicality of the film and how best to preserve it and how to make sure that these movies um, as kind of time capsules are preserved for future generations. But I imagine you bring a slightly different perspective as a filmmaker yourself. When you go to an event like Home Movie Day, before we even think about the movies that you're going to be sharing, what is it that you're looking out for? What kind of interests you about other people's wedding videos, amateur films, birthday parties, trolley, you know, snapshots? Well, first I just want to say that I'm very grateful to Brian and Molly for their work and their interest in archiving and being archivists and saving films and books and things and material. Um, I think there's something really beyond words that is really important about looking at film and holding it and feeling it and seeing it projected. I, I, I think there's a, there's a, uh, perhaps a different quality of experience seeing a film projected as opposed to something digitally. And I don't know what it is, but, uh, maybe it's a, uh, it, it's a different, uh, physical experience as well as an emotional experience. But, um, to your question specifically as you know someone who you know as a filmmaker i mentioned you are interested whenever you set out to tell a story through you know movies you have a particular perspective and also an understanding of like what kind of i don't know strategies you bring to this craft you know how can i elicit a certain response from an audience but also what are different kind of effective ways of making a movie that is both artful and also uh, kind of adept at conveying a certain story. These movies, they tell stories and they're artful to a point, but I imagine it's in a very different way, even than just making a documentary. You know, this is, these are nonfiction films, but they're also intensely kind of personal and private and almost hidden from reality until they emerge on something like Home Movie Day. Well, I bought a camera when I was in eighth grade. It was a Vivitar Super 8 camera. And I started shooting uh, movies around New Haven. And started at the New Haven uh, train station and just shot the tracks and the wires and uh, with my friend Richard. And we put together this uh, kind of Bergman-esque, strange uh, black and white film of a, a train pulling into the station. And then later we went to uh, May, uh, the March on Washington in 1971. And we shot that uh, event. And uh, that's what I brought to home movie uh last year and uh it, it, it that was my first experience as a as a filmmaker putting together splicing a, a movie together um and then i have always used since then uh, film and integrated it into my work so i still have a camera and i use it a different camera and i shoot film and you know uh and incorporate it into 
uh, stuff that I'm working on. One of the uh, things I so love about Home Movie Day is that it's not just a presentation of movies, and it's not just uh, kind of active or an opportunity to preserve them, but it also really involves the people who either shot the movies or made the movies. They get to narrate it, right? They're handed a microphone, and whether spontaneously or not, they can talk through their experience watching the movie again. Is that something you did last yeah, time? It's, and it's what's very, that narration uh, experience like for you? It's a very intimate experience, a very personal, you know, and 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 vulnerable experience because sometimes you're. Uh, it's embarrassing to show things that mm-hmm. you've shot that, that suddenly you realize that, oh, whoops, maybe I shouldn't have uh, done that or mistakes or so on. Uh, but uh, both uh, Molly and Brian are very good at you know making pe- people feel comfortable and the event is really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, right. I was just going to say, I think one thing that we hear a lot, um, which goes back a little bit to what Molly was saying about the different levels of kind of information in a home movie You'll get a lot of people who will come in and almost sheepishly say, well, these are my home movies. I'm sure they're not interesting. They're just me and my family or my siblings just kidding around. And you'll put one of them up on screen. And of course, it's fascinating. It's endlessly interesting on so many levels, possibly even more interesting to the audience than it is to the person whose film it is, because maybe they've seen it before. Maybe they know it. But to us, we're experiencing this just... There's like a through line all the way to this specific moment in May of 1952 in East Rock in a backyard, you know, and it's you're you're getting this like direct shot to the brain of what was going on in that very moment. And it's just so filled with information, whether it's, a you know, the family dynamics or the car or the clothing or the, you know, playground safety, whatever it is, it's it's really fascinating. And to them, to the person who brought it, maybe they they realize or discover that, you know, there is something really to it. And it's not just, it's significant to them, but it also really holds so much more information that's really fascinating for the for the rest of us. I believe in last year's episode, you also talked about how um, the audience kind of gets to play detective when watching these movies, that you're not necessarily sure when the movie was filmed, right. but by identifying a particular year or model of a car, you can say, okay, this is like a 1955 Chevy, so we know it was made after 1955, but right. that building was torn down in 1957, so we know that it was made before that. Um, when you think about uh, the kind of audience enjoyment of Home Movie Day, uh, do any particular movies come to mind or any experiences that you've had in the Home Movie Days you've been involved with, Brian, in the past couple of years that you thought this is something that is really special about... Uh, about Home Movie Day? Well, I think uh, the the story I mentioned before about the grandparents uh, at the wedding, I think, was, was the one I remember the most uh, from last year. I, I don't think there has been a Home Movie Day that I've been involved with that didn't involve someone crying. And that's kind of, that just speaks, you know, y- you, get, you, you get two hours of, of film, someone's going to cry during that time about something that they're seeing. And, uh, you know... I I personally love the 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 sort of film that we saw last year that David mentioned the the amateur horror film. There is such an amazing subculture of those films back uh, in Los Angeles when I was working on Home Movie Day out there. Uh, one of the staff members at the archive where I worked was an amateur horror filmmaker in his youth, and he brought in every year he would bring in a different movie that he and his buddies made. And they're so elaborate, and they're so well-constructed, and you can tell what movies they had just seen because they're ripping off plot moments from various different films. But just the sort of creativity under amazing constraints, I mean, having to shoot film in three-minute magazines and have it developed and use a splicer, an unwieldy splicing tape, it's, I mean, I don't want to sound like the old man, but, you know, it's easier (laughs) these days. And so 
to, to see what they were able to do back in, in the 1970s using, you know, Super 8 or 16 millimeter film is pretty amazing. And those don't generally make people cry, but, but they are kind of just a testament to ingenuity and creativity. You're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. And we're talking with Brian Meacham, Molly Wheeler, and David Pilot about Home Movie Day, which is taking place at the New Haven Museum this upcoming Saturday, October 15th from 12 to 4 p.m. Um, Molly, you were mentioning before we came in the studio that you recently had a child. So first of all, congratulations. Um, but also, I wonder how, you know, in Brian saying doesn't want to sound like the old curmudgeonly person saying it was more interesting in the old days. But I imagine Home Movie Day probably appeals more to an older generation than to a younger generation. And that one, this is, you know, you're soliciting um, kind of people with 8mm, Super 8 and 16mm films, right? So it's very unlikely that of younger people have anything like that at least that they've made but i wonder have you found that home movie day resonates with a particular kind of demographic most in new haven and also as someone who is a relatively new mother or at least you have a new child uh we think of a lot of home movies as kind of documenting your kids growing up have you thought of your own relationship to home movies as something that has changed at all since um becoming a parent i'm not sure if this is your first child but um yeah no but um gosh that's a good well to your first part about um maybe younger generations feeling connected to these technologies or not um first of all i think the aesthetic of home movies is really popular right now when you look around at advertisements or even the way that uh documentaries are being made by young people um i mean albeit that's usually a sort of a, a digital effect put onto a digitally captured moving image um but that speaks to something that that we like how that looks. The filters on Instagram usually sort of conjure up uh, the, the, the film technologies. Um, but I think also now that there's been a whole generation of people that grew up on digital where the, um, you know, it, it, they were totally immersed in that. Um, so a certain delight comes from the technology of how you interact with it. I think now there's sort of a swing back of being, it really interested in the in the mechanics again. So, you know, cassette tape culture is sort of back on the rise. Um, and so I, th- I don't We've know. We've had what- a number of shows about VHS as well and the kind of reemergence of that. Yeah. So, so I think people are really interested in, in objects again and how you interact with this object and you put it on a projector and the film is passing by light and the sort of temporal experience of the material. Um, I don't know why that is. Uh, someone else is probably do, figuring that out. <laughs> I mean, I could have certain romantic uh, notions attached of feeling alienated from it. So you want to get close to it again. Um, and as far as my feeling of, I'm not, I romanticize home movies and film um, in a certain way for aesthetics, but they also last, they last a long time. If you take care of these materials, essentially don't keep them in an attic. Don't keep them in a wet basement. Um, they're going to last a long time, whereas digital is really fugitive. Um, you just you have to remain committed to these files for a long time. That's that could be another show, whatever about digital preservation. Um, but there's a safety in a film uh, that I think I I wish that I was growing up in the generation that was just shooting to film in a more easy way instead of uh, shooting my little son with digital because I'm probably going to lose that. <laughs> 
David, you had a documentary premiere at this year's New Haven Documentary Film Festival. It's called Skin in the Game, the Raven Riley story. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, I haven't been able to watch it yet. I believe there's a copy at the Westville Library, though, at the Mitchell Branch. Oh, um, good. But, um, but <laughs> you, you came on uh, Sharon Benzoni's show at the moment a few months ago to talk about the movie. And I was listening to that mm-hmm. before um, we had the show. And I was trying to think about what relations, if any, could there be between the movie that you made and home movies. And two things really jumped out at me in the way you were describing the movie. One is that so Raven, the Raven Riley story is about a woman in Ohio who becomes involved in the world of internet pornography. So one thing you said really interested you about that was taking something incredibly private and making it more public. People who wanted to kind of share their the reasons for why they do something that people derive a lot of very private and often kind of shameful pleasure from. But kind of making public how they are regular people, they're normal people, they're people with certain kind of heartland American values that, uh, you know, they want to communicate. And that that kind of clash between public normality and like the intensely private nature of pornography. And then also the way you described Ohio and capturing like heartland America as, you know, nominally a really just kind of normal, flat, everyday place. But in fact, if you look at it and you look at the sprawl and you look at all, just the kind of weirdness of the middle of the country, it seems quite foreign. It seems quite alien. And I wonder if home movies, at least for me, sometimes elicit similar responses, taking something incredibly private and making it public and also taking a familiar territory and making it seem in some ways kind of alien. Like looking at New Haven from the 1940s doesn't look like New Haven today. Uh, and that kind of disassociation from my present understanding of New Haven, I find really interesting. So as you, I don't know if there's any connections you see between what interested you in the Raven Riley story and what interests you in Home Movie Day, but I'm curious to think if you think these theories are valid. Well, I'm almost interested in people's past and what makes, and you know, what makes them do what they do. And, um, it's 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 you know when somebody brings out a home movie or is able to tell you about their past and uh you know uh talk about things that are very private um i think that there's things there that we all can relate to and so my interest as a filmmaker as a storyteller is to find things that we can relate to in individuals who may be considered on the fringe uh, or, you know, way out there. And, uh, when I was asked to come to, uh, document this horror film that was being made by the way in Ohio, uh, by this group of kind of amateurs, uh, we got together, uh, a a small, uh, group of us and went to Ohio and, uh, documented their making of this horror Gothic porn which was horrific. But in the meantime, we got to interview them and really start to talk with them and ask them about their lives. And and it was interesting because we also shot, uh, I brought my super eight camera and shot them shooting the film and, uh, have all that footage. But, uh, I, I just think that the, uh, the experience of working in home, you know, starting off as a kid shooting film, Oh, it just hooked me immediately. And I always have been, I always was aware that people love film. They love talking about themselves and they like to be filmed and they like to tell the stories about their lives. 
we had an episode with Phil Rosenthal a couple months ago, who I know has participated in previous Home Movie Days, and he's a psychiatrist from Hamden. And one thing that he said really, um, really stuck out to me uh, about how he uses home movies in his own kind of therapeutic practice. And he said, the capacity to be jarred by memories is, I believe, essential. If one goes through life with the same story intact, something is missing. And I wonder if, David, as someone who is kind of sharing your own movies at Home Movie Day, um, as you revisit these, at, either as you revisited them last year or as you look forward to revisiting them this year, um, are you surprised by what you find? Is it something different than what you had remembered? Oh, I'm constantly surprised because even in, in the experience of watching something in front of an audience also heightens your perception because you're aware of things that you wouldn't notice by yourself. And... Uh, my dad was a psychiatrist and taught at Yale and took pictures and loved film. And so he really turned me on to it and, uh, and, and to, you know, uh, really being interested in people's behavior. So we're running low on time, but I want to make sure to ask one question about the kind of current state of home movies. And Molly kind of hinted at it in her response about how, you know, the, it would be nice to be able to film her kids as opposed to just record them on an iPhone. But I wonder, you know, if, it's been a year, Brian and Molly, since we last spoke about home movies on the air. And I wonder if home movies have come up at all in your day-to-day lives, either professionally or personally, whether there's something in the past year that has helped you think about home movies differently. And I'll give an example just for me. I think in the past year, we've really had this public emergence of home movies of, you know, videos of unarmed black men getting shot by police and those home movies becoming incredibly, you know, popular seems too base a word, but just incredibly influential in the way that we think about race relations in the United States, uh, law enforcement, the criminal justice system. And I think that this is, you know, it's a type of home movie. It's definitely one specific to 2016. I mean, it wasn't as easy to just, uh, you know, flip open a phone and record something and then share it with millions of people. But if that's a home movie that seems to be thriving in a really kind of sinister way, is there anything that, ha- any home movie-related stuff that has come up for you two in the past year that has helped you think differently about this format? I'm going to go to Brian uh, first. Okay, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm still firmly stuck in, you know, in the looking at film on film in my everyday uh, work, and this is very, very different from what you were just describing, but I... Uh, have been trying to get in touch with uh, filmmakers who were students at Yale in the 1950s who made one of the first productions um, ever put on by uh, by Yale students. And uh, I contacted one of them. He's in his 80s. And he sent what he thought was uh, the film, which was actually a Chaucer adaptation made in 1951, filmed all the way, all around Yale and at some, some closed bar, some after-hours bar down on Elm Street. But um, he sent a whole bunch of film, and it turned out uh, none of it was the film that he thought it was. It was actually all home movies of him when he was two years old. His family uh, did work in India, and so these are home movies of him from 1930. He'd never seen them. He doesn't even he he's, has no idea that really. He says, "I I suppose that may be what they are." And I says, "Well, there's a baby in it. The baby looks about two. The edge coat on the film says it's from two years after you tell me you were born." So. I now have to transfer these films and, and, and show him. But just the idea that he's kept this coffee can for years, thinking it was this Yale film, it turns out it's actually, you know, predates that by 20 years and is actually a film of him as a baby crawling around in India. That's that is fascinating. Great. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Molly, has anything in the past year come up related to home movies for you that has kind of surprised you or changed the way you think about this, this form? Um, 
that's a really good question. I, I don't have an answer. I've been in baby zone, which is not to plead that to say that I would have had some amazing revelation. Um, yeah, no. Baby zone is a good place to be, though. So yeah, um, you know that that what you bring up though about the 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 home videos, the home movies that are they're being shot and shared um, with enormous consequence. You know, luckily, um, yeah. I mean, that does bring up ways that people are thinking about. Uh, about films and how to take care of things that we consider sort of throwaways. Um, we, we have a colleague and friend that is looking at how police um, police departments manage all of their camera dash footage because those aren't throwaways, as we know. And they tend to just think of them as like, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're little home movies that you only need if there's sort of some consequence. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people that have started thinking about home movies have started it sort of expanded into more scholarly areas. Uh, so. David, I'm going to give you the last word on this, if you'd like it. Uh, just thinking about home movies, you know, someone sharing your home movies, maybe revisiting them for the first time in a long time, thinking about the state of home movies in 2016, any any insights? Well, you know, I just went to the uh, Goodwill on State Street, and I found an a, a old Bell and Howe projector, like from the 50s, you know, cast iron, a beautiful like deco design with uh, someone's home movies in it and uh, a newsreel, Japan Surrenders. And it was $25 and I bought it and I brought it home and I just started projecting the guy's home movies and one's Niagara Falls and one's here, this snowfall in Connecticut. And even though I don't know the people, there's something so... Um, you know, really moving about it, emotional, deeply emotional. And I don't know the people, but it's, you know, projecting this film and, you know, it's uh, someone who might have people who may have died already. And it's just a very emotional and uh, an experience that I think surpasses words. And uh, it's very important for us to, to value uh, these archives well david pilot is a new haven based filmmaker director of skin in the game the raven riley story brian meacham and molly wheeler are film archivists at yale university um brian where can people uh find out more about home movie day and where can they attend it so you can uh, visit our our uh a little page about the uh, the event on uh, homemovieday.com slash new haven uh it'll also link you to the facebook event page if you want to let us know that you're coming and it will be at the New Haven Museum uh, starting at noon and running until 4 o'clock. We'll be screening uh, films between noon and 2 uh, that we already have uh, uh, inspected. And between 2 and 4, we'll be screening the films that people have brought in. We need a few hours to inspect them and make sure that they're all okay and get them in the queue. So It's free and open to the public. That's right. A very important point. Well, David, Brian, Molly, thank you so much for coming on to talk about it. We'll make sure to post any links to Home Movie Day stuff on the Independent and Deep Focus Radio websites. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Okay, coming up next, a conversation with WNHH host Babs Rolls-Ivy about the new Ava DuVernay movie, 13th. But first, let's hear a bit of music from Ellison Jackson. I'm cold and hungry, would you turn me away? And if 
Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. For the second segment of today's show, I'm very happy to welcome Babs Rolls-Ivy, host of Love Babs Love Talk, Fridays at 10 a.m. on WNHH. Babs, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's so nice to be here with you. So, the movie review segment of the show, we'll be talking about 13th, the new Netflix documentary from director Ava DuVernay of Selma fame. Yep seems to be the perfect companion piece to Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, a powerful 2010 study that identified the implicit and explicit racial prejudice of mass incarceration. Alexander, who features prominently in the movie as one of the interviewees and kind of de facto narrators, helps draw the line between slavery, convict leasing during Reconstruction, mob lynchings, Jim Crow, and mass, incarcera- mass incarceration, arguing that each of these represents a slightly different manifestation of the same thing a racially charged system of control weighted with the economic and political power of white supremacy directed against black and brown people in the U.S. As UConn professor Jelani Cobb says halfway through the movie, the struggle of black people in America has always been to achieve a wider recognition of their full 
common humanity. And mass incarceration is just the latest system of social control used to counteract that claim to humanity. So Babs, I, I wonder if we could start our conversation about this movie um, just by hearing about what you took away from 13th. Did DuVernay's rendering of the story of racial prejudice and mass incarceration, did it give you anything new to mull over? Or is this a pretty kind of direct adaptation of a story that you are all too familiar with? I, I think both. I think, um, you know, this is not news to me because I, I work a little bit on the fringes of, of mass incarceration and hyper mass incarceration. Um, so I know a lot of this already. I think what was quite compelling was the way in which she brought all these pieces together. Cause normally we don't get the pieces. you know, there's eyes on the prize, right? That documentary from 20 years, almost 30 years ago. Um, there's some stuff that Ken Burns has done. So there have been people who have done different things around this, but she brought all these players together and fit this puzzle together and gave it to us in a beautifully looking piece of work. I think one of the most exciting kind of visually most exciting things about this movie is just watching the way that she filmed the interviews. And we have a great, you know, incredibly diverse group of people interviewed for this movie. We have historians, we have politicians, we have um, civil rights advocates, former inmates, as well as, you know, conservatives. We have Grover Norquist and Newt Gingrich talking alongside people like Jelani Cobb and uh, um, Michelle Alexander. And the way that she films these, they're not just, you know, the people aren't just kind of sitting in front of the camera. We're not just listening to the words coming out of their mouths. The Ava DuVernay is really conscious of the way that people are like framed in the camera, right? Yes. The way, do you remember the way Michelle Alexander yes. looks? And it's, she's like a goddess. I mean, yes. the way that she's framed by these two big like gray poles and we have this beautiful reflective glass behind her and she's mm-hmm. in this red throne. And it kind of makes sense because she is the kind of muse for this story. I think it's really, um, this seems to be quite inspired by the narrative that she brought to light in, in the new Jim Crow. Um, maybe even you know building a, a bit beyond that, because if that movie came out in 2010, before the rise of kind of the Black Lives Matter movement as we know it today, this movie definitely goes through that and through the deaths of of Trayvon Martin, of Eric Garner, of um, of Walter Scott, and everyone who has kind of been captured dying on video and shared um, on video. So I, I just I really appreciated the way that you know even though this is a story that maybe people. They feel, I'm sure a lot of people are not familiar with, so I'm mm-hmm. glad that it's it's going out there. But mm-hmm. just the way that she brought her kind of filmmaker sensibility to, like, the the way that the, even the interviews are filmed. I just, I don't know, I, I really appreciate that. I mean, if you, if you are a fan of her work, and I am, like, I saw the work that she did for commercial, like, for, for two pieces she did for, like, um, cotton. Hmm. <laughs> you know, for and for a designer. So I've seen that work. So I've seen all of her work. I've seen um, from nowhere, from middle no, of nowhere, from middle of nowhere. Yeah. I've seen. Uh, I've just seen everything that she's ever done. And so she takes a very um, she she makes black people look beautiful. We are beautiful, but we are never ever captured beautifully on film. And she's deliberately capturing us beautifully on film. And that's the that's one of the key differences between having black people in front of the camera and I think behind the camera as well. Because Ava DuVernay, you know, is quite an anomaly in like the American film world and that she's a black woman making movies. And there aren't a lot of black women who have achieved that that kind of status and recognition as she has. And I think that she brings an awareness of how just to light 
black people right. and skin, right? In a way that white filmmakers, I think, you know, it's, you just kind of wash out someone That's and they true. come off. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's a really loving and kind of sensitive portrayal of people. And then to hear the story that they're telling, it's, it's all the more affecting. I wonder if one of the kind of visual motifs of the movie, there are a couple. One is having the word criminal shown in all caps and all white whenever that word is used by anyone. We just get the flash of the word criminal right yes. across the screen. And another is we see the lyrics of songs yes. um, that are somehow, you know, they often hip hop, there's some gospel, mm-hmm. um, and they're almost always politically charged. And I think that that really gives us a sense of the kind of political motivations of art that we may, that some people listening to hip hop or any other type of music, you know, may not necessarily engage with it at a political level, right? You listen to it, you enjoy like the rhymes or the beats, and then you're like, all right, I'm on to the next thing. But I thought this movie did a really great job of highlighting, I mean, not like anyone needs to say that Public Enemy is like trying to make a political statement, but this movie shows that, you know, Don't Believe the Hype is responding to like what black people were going through in the early 90s, right? So, I mean, she took us to school. She took us to school. She she gave us the street education, and it, but she made the street education very intellectualized so that, so that no matter where you stepped in to see this documentary, you were going to learn something yeah. and you were going to hear about something that even if you didn't believe, like even if you are so far to, so, you know, just so far to the right or whatever, like you just can't even imagine these links watching this documentary. You have to walk away saying, wow. And I think that's one of the special, I mean, I watching this, I was constantly asking myself, what is this doing that the new Jim Crow didn't do or couldn't do as a book? Like, why is this worth making as a movie? Um, and I think one we from the very start we identified just all the different voices and people interviewed. Right, yeah. you can't, you don't hear um, someone like uh, you know Newt Gingrich even talking, talk, or uh, Jelani Cobb, or all of these former you know ex inmates talking mm-hmm. about Brian Ste- Van Jones, Brian Stevenson. Yes, and- Brian Stevenson. Right, he's right, and um, so just to hear their actual voices, I think is different from the book, but also to incorporate those other elements of pop culture. Right, you can't play a song in the middle of a book. Right. <laughs> But you can do it in a movie. But you can do it in a movie and do it well. She, and she used the right... I mean, there's a lot of music she could have pulled from, right? I mean, there's tons and tons of politically charged music out there. Um, but she chose music that spoke to the immediacy of right now. Like Public Enemy is like 20 years ago, right? 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. But it's still recognizable. It's still hard-hitting. It's still, when you hear it, you know, you have to think... Do the right thing, Spike Lee. You have to think of all those kinds of things and where you were. And eat twenty-five years is a long time, but not really. And so. I and one of the songs uh, played is Killer Mike's Reagan from that R.A.P. music, <laughs> from which is a, uh, an album that came out probably four or five years ago. And Killer mm-hmm. Mike, I think, uh, has attained some level of like national uh, political importance when he did all of those interviews with Bernie Sanders. I don't know if you ever saw those commercials in which Killer Mike came out yes. in like a big way supporting yes. Bernie Sanders. Yes. And I think, you know, a lot of people were like, whoa, look at this interesting, you know, combination of, you know, this this big dude, this rap, you know, star and Bernie Sanders um, talking about economic injustice and uh, unemployment in the black community. And But just to hear and to see the lyrics of that song yeah. and then intercut with documentary footage of Reagan kind of waging the war on drugs. Yeah. It's powerful. I thought that was powerful. I really, I mean, that just brought it. I mean, cause you know, Ronald Reagan would have been like a hundred years today, right? He'd have been like a hundred years old. Right? right. So, so it's amazing to sort of have that come back at you 
and you see the threat you see how everything is connected the threads of of racism starting back from you know uh when the slave ships came over and step after step after step legislatively and morally um these things were put in place to just keep people from going any further and I thought that was quite telling. And when you string all these things together, when you put all these pieces together, it takes your breath away. And you and you can't make the argument. You So the argument is can no longer be true. Well, if they just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Like you can't, that film, this, this film erases that thought for people. I think that's one of the sections that Brian Stevenson tackles in which he says, you know, we get criticized for where's the black leadership, right? And when you have... You know, generations of black leaders from you know MLK and Malcolm X, their groups were infiltrated by the police, right? right. They are constantly <laughs> undermined and put in prison. And this is where our leadership has kind of languished behind bars. And so when you say, you know, how could we, it's, you know, when people think, you know, how could I would have never allowed for slavery, you know, how could anyone have been so intolerant? And, you know, I would have acted so differently if I lived at that time. Um, and then especially thinking about, you know, conversations within the black community, how could we, you know, allow this to happen when it's so such transparent kind of racism and targeting. Well, I think one argument that Brian Stevenson makes that I found quite compelling is that when you have, you know, the leaders, the young in your community constantly thrown behind bars as early as, you know, 15, 16, 17, how are you supposed to develop that next generation of leaders, right? Exactly. And the Black Panthers is a really good example of that because, you know, the moment that the Black Panthers just started policing neighborhoods started carrying firearms openly, started feeding kids, started doing all these things. You know, they were, as you said, infiltrated, right? Because that couldn't go on. You can't have that. Let's shut this down. And they did. I thought that segment on the Black Panthers was interesting. And there's some great interviews with Angela Davis, too. She has... She's one of the most beautiful interviews where she's in the middle of this old, like, train station or some ruin. You know, she's in this cavernous space. Um, and there are also some footage of her talking as a younger woman, you know, after her trial in California and saying, you know, how can you talk about violence to me when all my people have known in this country is violence. But I feel like one of the arguments of the movie is that groups like the Black Panthers were never as important as the kind of white political machine, the white conservative political machine of Nixon and Reagan made them out to be Mm -hmm. that they said, you know, these are like public enemy number one, whereas in fact, they you know, they were a group of, of people who did not, in the same way that the, you know, Reagan and Nixon blew the kind of war on drugs and the issue of drug abuse in this country, like way out of proportion, like drugs were not a serious concern of people in this country in the early 70s until kind of politicians like Nixon and Reagan said it should be a concern. And I wonder as, you know, someone, you know, watching this movie, thinking about the different ways that uh, kind of the African-American community has been targeted in the last 40 years, but also the way this movie evaluates like the importance, well, maybe the Panthers weren't as important or the drug, you know, drugs weren't as important. Do you think this movie had like a good understanding of the history? Did you, as watching it, do you think like, yeah, this is the history I experienced too? Or were you like, oh, no, nah, this I, is oh, a different story? No, I think, I think it, I think it did. No matter where you stepped in at, no matter where you are on the age spectrum, right? Cause I'm 53. But someone older than I, maybe a decade older than my than I, could step in and truly identify and understand the same narrative, right? Now, my children or teenagers could step in and see and 
readily identify with a lot of what was said. So, so you see, there's this connection here that wherever you step in, there is something for you to take away from, which I, which I just think that's fine filmmaking, right? That anybody can watch this film and not feel like they can't walk away with something. And I think that gets to the central argument of it, which is that mass incarceration, the way that it kind of controls people of color in this country is nothing new, right? It's just a new version of something that's been right. happening <laughs> for the past, you know, 400 years, yes. or however long. Yes. Um, I, there's a, a fair amount of this movie, especially in the, the early parts, is dedicated to The Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith's 1915 movie about the kind of rise of the Ku Klux Klan and how that movie kind of re- kind of galvanized the KKK in this Mm -hmm. country and that it was kind of life imitating art and that, I don't know if this is true, but you know, one of the interviewees says the Klan didn't even burn crosses until the birth of a nation. And then after they saw the movie, they were like, Oh yeah, that would be an interesting (laughs) thing to do. And so all of a sudden, you know, that is like the landmark symbol of the KKK. But there's a number of conversations throughout the movie about how media is kind of manipulated by either side, like, uh, by the people kind of in power trying to exert their control through something like the birth of a nation or through, you know, Reagan and Nixon's various press conferences about how we have to fight crime like tooth and nail. And then at the end, you know, each of the civil rights activists are asked, do you think that these videos of young black men getting shot by police officers, should we be looking at these? Is this like a healthy thing for our society to be watching over and over again, black bodies dying on camera? And I wonder how you felt about that, that kind of tension in the movie between images of kind of black people being abused that are used by civil rights advocates versus images of black people being abused used by those interested in like perpetrating that or kind of continuing that um racially charged agenda i mean i think it's a it's a it's a tough line it really is a tough line because on the one hand you want illumination you want people to see what is happening because for a lot of people if they don't see it they don't believe it you could say whatever you want but if you don't see it and even for some people, if you see it, vis-a-vis the Holocaust, and people have seen pictures of the Holocaust, and there are people who will still argue the fact that that was manufactured. <laughs> Crazy. So it's the same, I have that same thought that we ought to see it. Should we be seeing it over and over and over again? I don't know. I mean, I, I understand what Emmett Till's mother said. I'm going to have an open casket so the world can see. And I really think in her mind, she thought that by doing that, that, people would be outraged and they would say never again. And they would be like, we can't have this. They didn't do anything. I mean, people were shocked, shocked, but here we are 50 years later Mm. and we're still seeing black people brutalized in the streets. I guess maybe it didn't, it didn't accomplish like complete equity and harmony between races in this country. But I do think that the, that decision to have an open casket funeral and to have it photographed by the media played a big role in inspiring civil rights, you know, the civil rights movement of its time to really step into high gear and say, this is, you know, this is an image that we can use to hit people in the suburbs, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that we can use to demonstrate to them that we're not just making it up, that it's not a matter of us kind of lying about things, right? We're actually... And that brings us to today, right? Because that's, this is what we're seeing with every, with every black body shot in the streets, gunned down. Was this an exhausting movie for you to watch at all? Um, I, I... all of it is exhausting to me all the time. Um, I mean, I'm exhausted by slave films. I'm exhausted by race stuff all the time. 
But that's that's a that's a part of being black in America or being black in the world. It's it's a level of exhaustion that other people don't know. Um, so I make my peace with that and watch and learn, right? And take away. So yeah. I kind of wonder who the who Ava DuVernay thinks is the audience for this movie because I can imagine a lot of kind of black people watching this movie and saying this is this is just too much I know this story this this hits me every day I can't, I can't you know spend another two hours and just watching it on a screen because it's it's too painful to see this again who needs to watch this are people like me the young white kind of liberals and also you know not liberals but people who need who haven't experienced this in who experience this through empathy and through art like mm-hmm. that is primarily and through friendships but their lived experience in the world is not one of kind of persistent kind of oppression <laughs> and i think that, but then again almost everyone i love i mean what's so unique about this movie is that almost everyone in front of and behind the camera is black and you cannot say that about a lot of movies that's true i think she made this film because she thought it was necessary and i don't think she cared about an audience per se i mean i, don't, I met her i've spent time with her I don't know her, um, but I've been in the same spaces with her and I get this. And if I had to go on what I, the time that I spent with her and listening to her, I would imagine that she made this film because it was necessary to make a film and that she could, that she could make this film. We're, we're running very low on time, I'm afraid, but I want to make sure to ask one more question. And that is about, you know, if what's so special about this movie for me, a lot of things, but um, are the interviews. There were a number of interviews that really jumped out at me as just bizarre one being newt gingrich newt newt gingrich's interview Mm -hmm. he really i I don't want to end this episode with a discussion of newt gingrich but he comes off as someone like incredibly compassionate and understanding well at least he he's like the consummate politician that he understands exactly how politics has been used to the detriment of african americans in the past 40 years but he seems i mean him juxtaposed with grover norquist it's like this guy actually understands what's going on Maybe he's not doing anything to help it, but it was, I don't know, it was weird. Someone I think of as like the enemy incarnate. Were there, were there any interviews that jumped out at you? It was like, yeah, I really, I want to follow this person or I want to listen to this person talk some more, whether Brian Stevenson or Michelle Alexander. I, you know what? I actually enjoyed listening to Jelani Cobb because yeah. you don't often get to hear him and he's here. Like he's here in Connecticut, right? right. He's at UConn. Um, and so it was, it really was a pleasure to hear him speak. Uh, I mean, I, I've seen everybody else. I've, listened to them i read their books and you know and i and i was enamored of all of it but i i thought jelani cobb i guess because he's so close to me here that i just felt like wow yeah and he's he's one of the kind of interviewees who kind of steps back because he's an academic i think he steps back and offers like a broader perspective on the story right he's not just narrating what's happening like the rise of a specific kind of prison industrial complex it's like all right this is what african-americans have had to deal with for decades for centuries yeah. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I do um, is this a movie you recommend? I absolutely recommend. Yeah, I'm going to make everybody watch it. Everybody I know. I may have a viewing party or something. Well, everybody watch. 13th is playing on Netflix right now. So if you have a subscription, check it out. Babs Rolls Ivy is the host of Love Babs, Love Talk. Uh, any other plugs you want to give, Babs? Uh, tomorrow I'm talking to uh, um, Mr. Pittman, who runs the, uh, who's the owner of the Salad Palace in Hamden, Travis Pittman. So we're going to be talking about health. That's great. black community, so. Travis Pittman at 10 a.m. Yes. Right? We will check that out. Babs, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's it been a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. All right. You, about films. We've <laughs> got to have you back. Seriously. Yes. Um, so you can find a complete archive of interviews on the show at deepfocusradio.com. Coming up next is Elise's Cocktail Hour. But first, let's hear a bit of music from Ellison Jackson. <laughs> 